punch the record button. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Geek Rant, episode 332. Get off my lawn! You know, in all the years of doing podcasting, we've never had a show titled that. That surprises me, quite frankly. Recorded August 5th, 2018, and brought to you by Element OP Productions. ElementOP.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Drive Time Radio for Geeks. I am your host, Mark, sometimes known as the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockerel. And joining me this week, as always, except the last two weeks when neither of them were here, are your two stalwart co-hosts, Seth, the Gooey Kid Anderson, and Miles, the Aussie Jenner Wakeham. Hello, gentlemen. Hey, Mark, and welcome back, Opiites. We're back. I'm back in America. America. Welcome back from your world travels. You've seen the rest of the first world. You've seen the third world. I don't know what the second world is, but maybe you visited that too. I don't know. I want to know why it stops at three. It's a leftover relic of the Cold War. When you had the first world was America and its allies. The second world was the Soviet Union and its allies. And the third world was everybody else too small to matter. And so. So is the Soviet Union still the second world or is it's the first world? Yes. Okay. All of the above. So we only deal with prime numbers. So it's the first world, third world, fifth world. Um, Two's a prime number. Well, that's fair. That's God forbid point. we colonize Mars. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> we're going to have that discussion in just a little while because today's show is, the Seth called it Get Off My Lawn. Seth puts a, a working title in every show note, and I pretty much change all of them. 332 episodes in, I've changed, I've not changed maybe three of them. And this is one of the three because Get Off My Lawn was perfectly appropriate for the discussion of the day. And we're going to talk about Miles' experiences um, in his visits with the first through fifth worlds uh, and, and specifically about population growth. But uh, first, I just want to mention, um, uh, you know, we, we missed a couple of weeks. We didn't tell you we were going to miss a couple of weeks. Um, I had a church thing two weeks ago, and then I was on vacation last week, uh, which was uh, I could have made it back. But Miles was also hovering over Fiji roughly around the time we were going to record coming back from Australia. So between those two things, uh, we just decided it wasn't worth it. So we took a break. We're back. No, we're not pod fading, except maybe we are, but we're not. I don't think maybe, um, that's all I had to say about that. We're still here. Yeah. And I'm, we've got some possible ways to do shows in the future. We may or may not experiment with that would alleviate some of the, uh, extended breaks that we take yeah i mean i've talked about it before i don't want to go too much into it but this um this is a significant investment in time and i'm at that point in my life right now where i have the least time i've ever had in my life uh, i conversely I have the most money i've ever had in my life uh, I, I think we all cross that point at some point then you you start to get to the point where you have less money and more time again um and so it's not that i don't enjoy this it's just that i'm i'm being pulled in so many different ways when something has to slip this um mildly beneficial to be blunt uh, a few hours of my week are the first thing to slip so i like doing it but uh it's nothing more than like at this point and you know capitalism being what it is if you want me here more often pay for it and i'll just leave it at that and now my uh miles look out drones yeah did you see the news about what happened in venezuela this week i did not Oh, man, this is so cool. I'm, I'm a big fan of Daniel Suarez, the author. Oh, yes. We've spoken about his books before. He wrote this book, uh, I don't know how many years ago, five years ago, called Kill, Kill Decision. Decision. Yep. Uh, it's really interesting. It's about drones. It's about the military using drones en masse 
to uh, conduct, you know, warfare and attacks and strikes and all this sort of stuff. And it's it's science fiction, you know, as as you would expect it to be. It's a way out story, not quite that far out, but enough to be of interest. Well, this week, the uh, president, I guess you call him, of Venezuela, is it Moreno? I think his name is. So he's doing this rally, as presidents do, I guess. And out of nowhere appears a whole bunch of DJI M600 drones who come and effectively attempt to attack him. And they're all fully laden with C4 explosive. I'm not making this up. He got attacked by drones this week. Apparently he survived it. Um, one of them failed and blew up an apartment building or something. And the other one, I guess. I guess it didn't detonate or they caught, they stopped it or something like that. But it's all over the news right now how these drones are attacking presidents. <laughs> so I just want to throw that out there. That's technology right there for you. Drones with C4 explosive. Yeah, it's a real thing. Yeah, well, just a quick thing there. A, if you've ever flown one of those things, it's not surprising that they don't work. It's kind of surprising <laughs> when they do work. And secondly, you fell victim to one of the classic media um, uh, storytelling devices. The drones attacked the president. No, somebody piloting a drone attacked the president. Right. Um, right. The drones are just the latest technology in use by people who want to kill the president. And by the way, um, presidents don't have rallies. Despots have rallies. Just going to leave it at that. Okay. Ah, <laughs> uh, just uh, that was just a light incendiary <laughs> to get the show going. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's just, if you look down through history, the people who have rallies do so because they're leading the people who don't want to be led, you know, against their will. Other people have galas. Yeah. Despots have rallies. So enough about that. So Miles sent me, uh, roughly a, uh, a novel on the, uh, the, the scale of war and peace, perhaps Moby Dick, uh, about his travels recently and said, can I talk about this on the show? And I was like, dude, if you can cram that into 50 minutes, go ahead. So here we go. Miles, the world is too big. Wake him. All right. Well, I'll start with one little statement and I'm going to challenge every listener out there, you guys as well, um, to check this out. Um, you can do this on Google. Work out the year you were born and type in what was the world population in and, you know, fill in that year. For me, it's 1964. I'm an old guy. Um, in 1964, the world population was 3.2 billion people. That's, you know, it's a lot of people, right? So um, I, I put a link in our show notes, but uh, I, you can all visit this. If, again, if you Google worldodometers.info, they have a live current world population number now you know i don't know if this is real but it seems reasonable i mean i looked at some of the you know imf numbers and uh the current world population as we were recording this is six billions sorry seven billion six hundred and forty thousand nine hundred million people roughly six let's say 7.6 billion people I didn't think it was that high. I thought it was like 7.1. And then somebody said, no, no, it's 7.3. I'm like, oh, really? Yeah, what's wow. 400 million I, between friends? Yeah, right. And then I look at it 7.6, like, oh, really? Um, but if you, uh, if you happen to use that same website or you find any other graph on this and you sort of scroll down and you look over world population, past, present, and future, 
um, you will realize that going back to the earliest census, and let's face it, they had census, you know, in 1 AD. I, I don't think so. But, you know, whatever. Well, of course, the Roman census. The, of course they did. did they had the, they did? the, yeah, I mean, the entire book of Numbers is a census of the Jewish kingdom. And, you yeah, know, the. But they the, hadn't conquered, like, China yet. Right. It was the world as it was known at the time. Right. Okay. All right. But uh, say so let's 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 say these numbers were reasonably low, and they're thinking two three hundred million people living on planet Earth. You know, back then. I mean, wow. I'm sure it was. Okay, let let's say it's ten times that. Right. Let's say we five times that. It's still very low. And if you look over time at the growth of population over the years, when you start getting to the 1800s, 1900s, the graph goes seriously exponential and crazy. Now, okay, look, I'm not a statistician, economist, anthropologist, whatever you call the guys who do this. Um, it's interesting that if you were look at, a, at the numbers on climate change, they sort of parallel the same process. But those numbers aside, whether you agree with them or think they're a political statement, you can make graphs say anything you want. But these sort of graphs kind of send a message that, wow, we got a lot of people on this planet. But, you know, look, I live in Phoenix. Uh, it's got 5 million people in it. It's really well designed. It's got big roads, big freeways. It's a big area. I can go from one side to the other, which is about 100 miles, uh, very quickly. And I don't butt up with anybody in the 7-Eleven and, you know, have to jostle for control of my line position at the bank. I mean, it's, it's easy. It's not a big deal. I don't, I'm, I'm sure, you know, even some of the bigger cities like LA, New York, it, you know, you could say, look, they're overpopulated. It's horrible. It's a jungle out there. They're not. If you've ever been to Tokyo, you know what I'm talking about. They've got no idea what population density can be, but still well-designed, right? Okay. So all of that aside, I fly into Australia. I'm in one of those strange positions where we go back there once every year for a couple of weeks in July. And we've done this for the last five years. And I get that weird opportunity to kind of open the window and, and land there and see the country for a few weeks and then close the window and not go there for 12 months. So I get to kind of see the forest rather than the trees in this. Um, and then for the last five years, I've noticed it felt a little bit congested, a little bit. Two years ago, it got quite congested, and this last trip blew my mind because it was so overpopulated in Sydney, particular, that I couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. It was just really, really overpopulated. And we're going back to the airport. We stayed in a hotel that was a mile from the international departures, um, you know, curbside drop-off at the airport. A mile. Right. It's a Sunday morning. It's, uh, I don't know, 8.30 in the morning. And we're going to go from our hotel to this thing one mile. It took 58 minutes to get there. The traffic was a parking lot. I could have walked faster. But, you know, I got bags. I don't want to do that. So I'm talking to the cabbie in the, in the cab all the way through. And he's telling me this story about the population of Sydney and how it's grown out of control, the cost of living, the cost of housing, what he sees on a daily basis. And, you know, cabbies see a lot because they talk to everybody and they see things with their own eyes. And, and he's right. The place is out of control. And, 
you get to the airport, you're trying to get through the, you know, exit the immigration thing. And the lines were nuts. And, and I, I swear, I had to tell off three people from just trying to jump in front on lines. This isn't the country I came from. This is a very different place. It's this, like, and I just, I literally, I literally in June was in Mexico City, a city with 22 million people in it. And it was so much easier than Sydney, a city of 5 million people. So I'm sitting on the plane thinking about what, what, what we just went through, this, this crazy overpopulation. And I start realizing the importance of, of planning. And, you know, I get back to the States and everything's so much more civilized which is really unusual, but it really, I landed in San Francisco. It was civilized. It was nice. It, people were great. The guy at the, at the immigration letter scene was really pleasant. Welcome home, he says. And it felt great. But going through the whole jet lag process, you know, you're at three in the morning, you're sitting around thinking. And I thought, well, what's causing this, this chaotic mess down in Australia? And so I did a little bit of research. And what I discovered was, really scary. Apparently, when I left my country back in 1989, um, the population was about 1.7 million people. And today, it's something closer. Well, the census numbers will tell you it's 2.5 million. But actually, the reality is they don't include temporary workers, foreign workers, students on visas, um, illegals, people who overstayed their visas, that sort of thing. And the numbers are probably more realistically above 30 million. So in the space of, uh, I left in 89, what is that, nearly 20 years, 30 years, I'm sorry. In, the, in that sort of time span, it went up. It almost doubled in that time span. And it got me thinking, how sustainable is this growth? At what point do we all grab you know, guns and try and defend our farmland because somebody's going to steal your food. At what point does this turn into the walking dead? Um, and, and that was the whole point of my discussion. And I wanted to, we don't feel it here in the States. And I think the main reason is we've got so much better town planning, so much better uh, willingness the, the, the whole mantra of build it and they will come is so true. It's, an, it's a U.S. Um, beautiful philosophy. I wish others would embrace it. It means invest first for scale. And then it allows you to scale. It allows you to have a decent population where people aren't falling over each other. But what I discovered in my travels was just how other countries do not embrace that. And um, I wanted to just put a point out there, which might be something that triggers some conversation on this. One thing that is going on in the Australian government is that they went through a period of time in the 2000s through 2010 period where the country was a boom economy because it has more resources. You can, you can dig wealth out of the ground in the back kind of country. You know, it's got iron ore, bauxite, aluminum, uranium, anything you want, it's out there in the backyard. Go and dig it up. And that led to enormous wealth that that country was able to avoid the global financial crisis. 
And it did it because it had this enormous amount of demand for resources that were predominantly coming from China. And that demand was a reaction to the demand for consumption of the products China made, predominantly coming from the US. So with this train, Australia was able to benefit greatly in terms of resource supply. After the 2008 global financial crisis, <coughs> we started to see a decrease in demand on China and consequently a decrease in demand for resources, meaning Australia now no longer had the ability to sustain itself with a massive amount of resources. It could now live in the world, the rest of the world that had for many decades. It became addicted to debt. The people were buying cars they couldn't afford, houses they couldn't afford, five flat screen TVs, the best phones, everything, living the high life because they were digging the stuff out of the ground out the back. And when no one wanted it anymore, they still had to pay the credit card bills. They still had to pay the mortgages and so on. The price of an average house in the Sydney suburbs when we left there a few weeks ago, about $1.6 million. Now compare that population, five, uh, five, 5 million people. Compare that to Phoenix, population 5 million people, average pr home price here, $250,000. It but doesn't make sense. Compare it to San now, Francisco, those, it's pretty sorry. if you compare it to San Francisco, it's pretty equitable. It is yes, but San Francisco has an industry around it that supports a lot of people migrating there. It's got a Silicon Valley. It's got the the it's got a reason to move, and it's mainly work based. Sydney is it's a big city. It, it's not anything special. It's Sydney. I mean, don't take me wrong for anyone who lives in Sydney. It's, it, it's a great place. Don't get me wrong. But it's not a draw. What it is, is you've got a government that is addicted to try to pay for this debt load. But rather than the government taking on board the debt of the country, they want to maintain this AAA credit rating thing. So they don't take on the debt. They push the debt over to the population. And what I found, and this is crazy... Is Australia has the third largest debt-to-income ratio for average households in the world, 200%. That means the average Australian person is carrying more in credit card debt, more in mortgage debt, more in car loans than most countries. Only two other countries in the world, Denmark and Switzerland, I think, exceed their debt load. So what the government did was said, well, we don't want to take on debt. You private people take on the debt. And we'll support you. We'll let the banks go crazy and give you loans for houses. We'll drive up the property market. You can thank us later. Well, they didn't invest in roads. They didn't invest in rail. They didn't invest in airports. And the reality is now they've got this poor infrastructure, poor planning. But to counter that, they've come out and said, we want to increase population here by maybe take it up to 50 million by 2050 on this sort of what they call pro-growth strategy, which sounds really good if you don't dig deeper and realize you've got a plan for this stuff. And, and that's kind of where I wanted to open the conversation. City planning isn't a boring thing. If you ever play SimCity, you kind of get that, that whole vibe. Um, you've got a plan for this stuff before you go nuts on open immigration. And this is not an issue about politics and, and uh, racism or anything like that. This is about simple preparation 
for something you might want to do before you do it. Um, so I open, I, I leave it there. What, what do you guys think about that? Well, my first question, Miles, um, is I'm a Merkin. Why do I care about what's going on in Australia? Because I would say Australia is the canary in the coal mine for this. It represents the, okay, the, let's look at just a few numbers to kind of give you some parallels. The uh, population in Asia, um, China, about 1.4 billion people. India, about 1.3 billion people. Have a look at a map and see the size of their land. It ain't that big. Not for that sort of population. We've got, what, 320 mil, uh, million here? Mm -hmm. Each one of those countries is four times our population, and there are two of them. So we've got eight times the population of the world in one region who need resources like crazy. They need food. They need uh, steel. They need iron. They need um, agricultural products. They need all of that. And in order to get it, they have to go to where that is, whether it's South America, Africa, Australia. And we've been very, very lucky in the United States. We've created this sort of bubble. And the bubble is that everything we can source ourselves internally and we can you know, meet our own demands internally. It's fiction because we buy all – you go to Walmart and look at the, what's on every tag of every product in Walmart and see where it's made. We're supporting that population and their fervor and hunger for resources. And if they have, can't get them in their own land, they have to go where the resources are. Historically, if you look at you know, the world history over thousands of years, when countries found themselves in a situation where they did not have enough resources of their own, what did they do? They immediately went and conquered another country to take their resources. And we can't do that these days because that would look bad and it would bring the world against the, you know, I mean, look what Saddam Hussein did when he wanted Kuwait, right? Didn't end well. But economically, you can do that, right? You can go in there or through maybe immigration or migration path, you can do that. And that's the concern I would have is that it's okay. And, and I'm an open borders kind of guy, Right. But I'm an open borders kind of guy with an example of maybe France and Spain. You don't see this massive Spain exodus into France and you don't see a massive French exodus into Spain because both countries have their own economies and they're both doing quite okay. And they've got enough resources. It kind of works, right? America, uh, United States and Canada, same relationship. You don't see a mass cross-border proliferation. To the South, it's a little different. But at the end of the day, the problems of migration affecting world population or population of individual country comes down to A, the willingness of the country to accept it, and B, the infrastructure of the, company, of the country to be able to support it. So how does it affect Americans? If you see what's going on in these other regions, you'll realize we've got to invest in infrastructure big time. Because if we don't get ahead of this, it'll get ahead of us. We could just build walls. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that – does that really work? I, 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 what do you guys think about that? That's a very – because it shouldn't be a political thing. It should be, I believe, a practical, scientific, uh, civics-type issue 
But what do you think about that? Let me just make a couple of points. Um, Population control. Making fewer babies doesn't work. China tried it to the point of murdering people, and it still didn't work. Um, The the Chinese population grew. Um, Because making babies is one of the most fun things that, that humanity can do. So there will always be babies. There will always be new babies. War, famine, whatever else is going on, there will always be babies. Um, so uh, let's just pretend that's not going to happen. So the, the choice is um, you either uh, stop letting people live as long, right? So the reason the population is growing is because the death rate is lower. Um, so we're having roughly the same amount of babies, probably fewer, we're probably actually having fewer babies, uh, throughout history worldwide, uh, than we ever have, but people are living longer, um, longer life, expanding population. So you only have two choices here. You either, um, start killing people, uh, or figure out a way, place to put them all. Those are the only two, uh, anything else, any other discussions, uh, any other, um, you know, red herrings you may have throw out there are pointless because really it all comes down to two things. Eventually it's either eugenics or immigration. Pick your poison. Seth, between those two, which would you choose? You see, the problem is the false dichotomy that you um, gave us there. It goes back Curse to you and your young- not knowledge of rhetoric. <laughs> the problem is the underlying greed that dominates modern economics. You know, when you have a monetary system that is deflationary in nature, for example, the government needs more money. They put more money in circulation. There used to be $100 to buy all the resources. Now it's $110 to buy all the resources. So the dollar you had yesterday is worth less today because there's more dollars. The only way to offset that is to maintain a positive growth so that way you can get dollars at a faster rate than depreciation. Well, if that happens, you've got to outsource this and outsource that, and you've got to pursue that upward financial growth. And so in order to do that, it doesn't matter because you want your dollars to be more. We don't want to stop and we don't want to realize, wait a minute, what are we doing? Look at all the stuff we have. I, you know, getting rid of plastic straws and throwing people in jail because they want to use a plastic straw is not the answer. It's a symptom of a deeper problem. If we would take the time to realize you know, what I have is probably enough. It's the media trying to pound in you that you don't have enough. How many times do people rush out to buy the next thing? Is it the new iPhone? Is it the new Samsung? You know, 10 years ago, it was the new laptop. 20 years ago, it was the new desktop that you had to have when the one you got rid of three times ago can still do everything you do today. But because we want that, we want the new thing, but we're not going to pay for people at our standard living to make it we're going to pay for the other people to make it and then we're going to throw our junk to them so that way they don't even have a chance to grow they're just they become dependent on our junk so they can't develop their own stuff so that way we can continue to exploit them and along the way we forget what we're doing and then it's just this whole cycle that goes over and over so the problem isn't i mean yes resources are a problem and waste is a huge problem but the lack of conservation is a bigger problem than waste. The greatest way to recycle something is to never use it in the first place. So and if we would 
do that, it would be less of an issue. Seth, what would you say then is the maximum population that our planet can handle? A few years ago, you know, in, in, but when we were born, uh, it was four billion. Now it's on, going on eight billion. Uh, follow that number out in forty years, it'll be sixteen billion. So, what? What? At what point are we going to outgrow this little blue marble? I think this world could easily support twenty-five or thirty billion, but not the way we manage it today. So, who gets to decide how we manage it? Well, I'm just talking about our waste and consumerism and, you know, but I mean, because, okay, I live in a little town called Fruitvale. It's about an hour outside of Dallas. 15 years ago, I could drive through Dallas and north into Plano for my job every day during rush hour traffic. Yeah, there was some inconvenience, but not a big deal. Now, I had a job where... I was to be at work in downtown Dallas at seven and the traffic to get to work at Dallas at seven is greater than it was 15 years ago to get there at eight. And there's just such a huge influx of people. I understand what miles is getting at because yes, America still has tons of wide open land, but the congestion, you get these pockets of congestion that just slowly creep out and the problem is they were set up well, but nobody's extended that setup. We just puke people up in cities and, you know, we're destroying the infrastructure and then people just get mad. So, th- like I say, the problem isn't what we have. The problem is we don't know how to use what we have well. And so we think the shiny new thing is going to help, but it's not going to address the deficiency in us. I so really there. like how you said that. I actually, the one thing I thought you nailed it on was this concept of rampant consumerism and overconsumption. And and I would just say, look, I think we've got an addiction, and we have to deal with this addiction to consumption because it isn't healthy. Um, people are way too big; they've got way too much stuff. Um, there's even a cry within the newer generations for minimalism and things like that. I'm not saying that if you don't have, I mean, look, if you've got more food than you can eat, then great, you know, have a party. But share it around. Don't just gorge it all yourself. I mean, if you've got more land than you need, then great. But do you need the McMansion on it? I mean, at what point is enough enough? And I mean, look, I don't want to take away anybody's right to, success and, and experience, you know, pursue that whatever they want to do and, and benefit from the rewards of doing that. But at the same time, I would ask any individual to look at themselves and go, are you any more happy from this rampant consumption? Particularly if you're on the road to um, this perceived success line of wealth, uh, and particularly when you're shepherding the burden of having to work 50, 60 hours a week and sit on that very road that you were talking about in traffic with everybody else on the same path to the same insanity, at some point somebody has to say, hang on a second, people. Are you really, really needing that new iPhone? Are you really willing? Do you really understand the true cost? of that iPhone, that you're going to be sitting in traffic for the next 10 years. You're going to be on that treadmill and you can't get off it. You won't have any money to retire. You're probably going to get sicker earlier in life than most. 
And at the end of the day, you've got a nice little bleeping gadget with Siri in it. Is this worth it? I mean, I don't want to overreact at the same time. We are so addicted to consumption that we're creating a problem for the world with pollution, problem for the world with overpopulation and everything else. And this mentality in government for this pro-growth agenda as a way to try to build economics up based out of fiction. Well, I mean, economics is, by definition, I don't know the actual definition, but um, is the management of resources. That's what economics is. Um, so when, when we talk about the economic process, it's, it's uh, managing uh, the income versus the outgo versus, versus the maintenance and that sort of thing. So that, that's what economics, all of these discussions are economic discussions, um, whether it's, you know, the iPhone or the, the enough bread and water to sustain you. Uh, it's, they're all economics in the end in that uh, resources exist in abundance in some places and in, in scarcity in other places. And, you know, government exists was created for the purpose of managing resources of a group of people making wise decisions about how to uh to allocate the available resources that's that's the his, the the essence of what government is um but when you take things to a global scale there there aren't really global resources yet there aren't global governments yet there aren't global economics yet we're we're still tribes some tribes are bigger than others. You know, you talk about China and India, you know, 1.4 billion and 1.3 billion retrospectively. That's a tribe over there. Until we stop thinking tribally and start thinking globally, there is no single economic system that's going to matter. Um, and we're just going to keep making people. And, and you know, w before we were uh, recording, Seth made some comment about, you know, we can just colonize Mars and problem solved. And, and my response was, we could colonize the Sahara much more easily than we could colonize Mars, but nobody's working on that. We could colonize really? the deserts of South Africa pretty easily, but nobody's working on that. You know, the, and you can breathe oxygen in the Sahara right. despite the temperature. Yeah, and you can, bring, you can bring water there and you can bring food there, just like you'd have to bring water and food to Mars. But it's much more exciting to send 50 people to Mars than it is to support 500 million people in South Africa. Yeah. But we, so. no, the other thing is that we have, you know, as human beings, we are migratory, right? That's in our DNA. We, we move. We move to where the weather's better. We move where the jobs are. We move to where we feel better. You know, we, we are migratory. I'm a, I'm a Wait, perfect example of that. Let me interrupt you there. That migratory sure. nature is exactly what causes the traffic you were talking about. I don't want to live in the city where I work. So right. <laughs> that migratory nature creates all the problems you were just describing. Yeah, yeah. The funny thing, here's something interesting I was thinking of. Um, you know, in technology, we're very lucky, at least maybe in the last sort of 30 years or so, that we've been able to model a kind of a virtual world uh, unto ourselves. And, you know, I, the obvious example of that might be some of these like massive multiplayer role-playing games like Second Life or, or stuff like that. They create these artificial worlds and they deal with the day-to-day -day reality in a sort of a game theory form of how life works, you know, economics and get a house and build a house and terraform land and all the other things that gamers probably do on a regular basis. Um, we also start realizing when you build, if you've ever built large-scale computer systems, um, there's a thing about scale. 
that scares most system architects. And that is that what if I build something and too many people come? When the internet connected it, we saw uh, sites like Twitter, for example, for years get overloaded to the point where they were almost unusable until somebody worked out the secret of how to scale it. And it just it's remarkable to me that you have sites like Facebook and Twitter that can exist with the, with the billions of users. I mean, it's just remarkable. And yet we've been able to achieve a success rate in scale in the virtual world, in the digital world, but we can't seem to achieve the same success rate in scale in the physical. And the one difference is that if we learn anything from technology, one would learn that the internet is a collection of decentralized nodes that don't rely on each other, that can route traffic around them and so on. And yet we don't build a decentralized world where you don't have to sit in traffic to go to the downtown city center because in your local area, there's a satellite version of what you need or you can work from home or you can, you know, I think that's the answer to be more available to decentralize out the resources required. Uh, that's the hospitals, the universities, the fire departments and so on out into smaller neighborhoods than it is to try to conglomerate them into these city centers and make it impossible to scale. We would never do that with computers, yet we do it in sound planning without question. But, you know, and there's a lot of truth that can be gleaned from that, but also the way you fix the computer problem is you throw more resources at it. You know, we only have so much land and so much water. And now granted, I think there is an abundance if we were to utilize things better, but in what, you know, it's easy. Oh, look, you know, Facebook is overloaded. Let's open up a new data center and load balance that and scale it out. You know, that's why I want to colonize Mars. Oh, look, earth is overloaded. Let's open up a new planet and throw some resources (laughs) there. So see me going to Mars is the technological approach. And that's what everybody wants because then it's not our responsibility to use what we have. We get to keep living the way we want to. And just, you know, you people go away. This is my planet. Go find your own. And I mean, yeah, it's tongue in cheek and kind of funny, but you know, who wants to be responsible to fix the problems? You want to do something else so that I can continue to do things the way I've done it. And the problem gets fixed by somebody else. And that's, that's why Mars is more attractive than, you know, sustainable farming and energy conservation and, you know, don't go to the store seven times a day, make a list, go once a week and budget your food and say, oh, you know, let me eat what I have today rather than, you know, I've got a pantry full of food, half of it's expired because I've never used it, but I don't want to open that door. I'm just going to go eat something out tonight. And, you know, that's a first world problem and first world problems are great, but they end up killing people who aren't in the first world. So, yay, America. So, I just want to wrap this up by saying if you haven't already or if you haven't recently, I encourage you to go read the uh, book uh, Caves of Steel by Isaac Asimov. It's one of his um, uh, iRobot series uh, of books. Uh, He wrote it in... It was published in 53, so he was probably writing it in 52, uh, 51, somewhere around there. And uh, the... uh, the population at that time, according to worldometers.info, was about 2.6 billion. 
And he posits a future of three to 5,000 years in the future where the world population has ballooned to 11 billion. And he describes um, these caves of steel, these giant cities that are essentially giant steel uh, domes in which the the population lives. Uh, and it was just interesting uh, that I'm reading this book right now and, and we're having this discussion right now. What a science fiction author uh, posited as would be necessary at 11 billion, uh, 3,000 years in the future, uh, we're, we're, you know, less than 60, well, 65 years in the future, and we're, uh, uh, you know, halfway to his, his projected goal there, and we're doing just fine. You know, things are a little uncomfortable in Sydney, but overall, the world's doing just fine. I, I just think uh, it goes back to our discussion previously. We, we tend to look, we jump immediately to the dystopian, only to find out that, you know, humans are pretty adaptable. We'll figure this stuff out. And, and I, I'm, just, I'm just very hopeful that uh, this just isn't going to be the problem that we all think it is. We're not going to be living on yeast supplements uh, in the near future, at least not in my lifetime. Frankly, that's all I care about in my lifetime. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're going to we figure these problems out as they come. Uh, whereas the, the romantic in us wants to figure out all the problems now and plan for them, Miles, to your point. Let's plan for all conceivable futures. Well, if we, if we trusted that methodology, all of our phones would still have cords on them. Um, we just, we don't plan, we can't think today about what the future is going to be. We have to solve the future as it becomes the present. Yeah, uh, you're right. Um, it's smart that wins here. It's not, you know, you can't make these totalitarian statements and you can't shut off migration because it's natural and you can't shut off birth because it's natural. And so if you accept that, smart wins. And smart means, okay, we're going to have a lot of people at scale. Um, you know, we, we also have to be real. Do we have to realize that a lot of the problems that uh, our politicians get us into by making kind of knee jerk reactions to things uh, particularly, you know, for example, the, be the best example of that would probably be the Middle East, where overpopulation in certain regions and then leaders, totalitarian dictator leaders that were taking all the resources from the people and hoarding it for themselves, um, when, they, when they go away and the people are left with no resources and no direction, then chaos ensues. We saw this in Iraq. And we've seen that chaos manifest in so many different forms of, of uh, mano a mano uh, warfare based on religious ideology or I should have that, you should not, I'm going to shoot you to get it, um, that manifests in these sort of crazy ideological terrorism issues. And, and one of the things I've always said is if you ever want to stop a terrorist, there's one way you can do it, give them a job. If you take resources and you allow people to evenly distribute the resources where they actually can, can have a job, they can have a career, they can make wealth, they can feed their family, there is no reason for them to take up arms. And, if, and that is the core problem here. We never addressed that problem. And what we created was f sort of factions or fragmentation of this problem that there aren't enough resources and there's too many people. But we can poke the hornet's nest by going in there, sending troops in, but not addressing these issues at a more sort of economic form format. Now, I know it's, I mean, I'm, maybe I'm way too uh, hopeful that we can go and do these things with a hands-off 
approach. Um, maybe you just can't in some cases. But sticking the the pole in the hornet's nest ain't helping. And if we want to put our own people on the front line to go in there and try and fix that problem, we should probably address the fact we shouldn't have poked the damn hornet's nest in the first place. I, You know, yeah. uh, thinking about things is important. Thinking about things before they happen is important. Uh, so I'm glad we're having discussions like this, but let's face it, three, three fat white guys ain't going to fix this. Uh, <laughs> So I only have one question left, and that's, Seth, what happened this week in history? All right, Mark. Well, I wanted to let you know that on August the 7th, 1959, the first photograph ever taken of Earth by a U.S. satellite happened um, when the Explorer 6 was launched from Cape Canaveral. It was like known as the Paddle Wheel Satellite, and it took a photo of the earth from like 17,000 miles high and it turned out it was Mexico. The thing about it is it took 40 minutes to transmit that photo. But in 1959, the first photograph of the earth was taken. So from space or near earth orbit, because you could argue that anybody who pointed a camera to the ground took a photograph of earth, but from space or at least near earth orbit that happened this week in history, Mark. And now back to you. Take that flat earthers. <laughs> Oh, oh! Guess what? I got to, I got to throw this in. Um, there's a TV show on Discovery. It's in its second season right now. I've watched it since the first one. It's really cool. It's called Cooper's Treasure. Yes. Have you guys, yeah? I've seen. I haven't Talks watched exactly it. Exactly. Seen this. the ads. Yeah. Man, it's it's really cool. It's really cool. Astronauts and treasure hunting. Really cool nice. stuff. All right, Seth. Now, what do you have to lower my productivity this week? That's making you seem like a better hiring option. All right, Mark. Well, if you're somebody out there and you just like, guys, I don't care a thing about what you said. I'm an American and I'm proud. <laughs> well, you can go to primalurgefoods.com and have a box of meat oh. sent to you every month. <laughs> so <laughs> roughly about $20 a box. These are, but see, here's the thing. You can feel good about it because these are like non-GMO ranged things and you can run from like fish to deer bison you know antelope anything from alaska to florida anywhere in between primalurgefoods.com and get a meat box sent to you or a loved one so you know we are carnivores or technically we're omnivores but you know meat counts too so primalurgefood.com And it could not be more opposed to the entire discussion we've had about managing resources. Let's have meat cold packed or dried and shipped to me rather than, than eating what's available. Let me, that's awesome. Uh, I, I done in snack size, not bulk for consumption. That makes it perfect. Make sure it's individually wrapped in plastic so that we have, we can burn up some petroleum in that process. Uh, but for the meatitarians around the world, um, this is all you. Uh, it really looks like jerky. Pretty much various flavors of jerky. I like me meat. You know, yeah. So, well, I mean, I don't know. Okay. So for May 218, you get alligator um, and then uh, rosemary herb chicken, uh, seven grain protein, elk meat. So, yeah, meat snacks. I'm, <laughs> I, I don't want to imply that I thought that jerky was a bad thing. Right. Um, just caveman foods. I'm in. Um, that sounds kind of cool. Um, all right. This is the part of the show where I tell you how you can feed back to us next week 
will be the much long-awaited, like almost a year since we had one, listener feedback show. I've got lots of, of feedback, uh, uh, and we will you will be heard. So get this now is the time to get your uh, messages in there. You can go to elementopi.com, click the Contact Us button at the top of the page, uh, fill out the world's hardest captcha, fill out the form there, and uh, and send us what you have to say. Or you can dial 559-IMOP and leave us a voicemail, and we'll play your voice right alongside ours uh, on the show. Uh, or, as always, you can send an email to geekrant at elementopi.com, and that will go to all three of us. Uh, we look forward to hearing what you have to say. And as I've said uh, at the top of the show, if you'd like to support us financially, uh, you can do that through the the tip jar, PayPal. Uh, you can send me Bitcoin. That's still a thing. Uh, you can, uh, uh, you, but the best way, my favorite way, is go to patreon.com slash elementopi and um, make a pledge there. Uh, and what I like about that is you, if I don't produce, you don't pay. And, and so that incentivizes me to produce uh, the, the few people who are paying me monthly via PayPal. I, while I certainly appreciate that, sometimes I feel guilty when we go two weeks without doing a show because I've, I've cheated you. You've paid me for a month and I've only produced two weeks worth of shows. So I like Patreon for that uh, uh, in that, you know, it's a pay to play sort of thing. So we appreciate it uh, either way. Listeners, we thank you for listening. Jinda, thanks for hanging out in the chat room with us. Um, you can do that by going to elementopi.com slash live uh, long about 7.15 to 7.30 uh, on an average Sunday night when we're recording. And, uh, you can you can participate right there. Um, anything else to say, guys, in the final 30 seconds of the podcast? No. Sustainability, it's a thing. It is a thing. And if you don't think about it, it will force you to think about it. All right, everybody. We'll see you next week. And remember, pay for what you like. That's it for this episode of whatever the show is. Geek Grant, that's the one.